Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Professor Emily M. Bender, who is a professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Washington, as well as the co-host of the Mystery AI Hype Theatre 3000 podcast. Thanks for joining us, Emily. My pleasure, and hello from Seattle. I have to say, I've really been finding your podcast incredibly useful for understanding the current AI moment that we find ourselves in. I guess just before we begin, maybe we could uh, define a few things. There's been a lot of hype around AI but you don't think that AI is really the correct word for what people are using. Could you tell us what is AI and what should we be calling it? So the the phrase AI, which uh, stands for artificial intelligence, is what Drew McDermott and Melanie Mitchell call a wishful mnemonic. That is, it is a description of what the technologists wish they were building. And it's just hype from the get-go. Um, I think that any discussion of so-called AI becomes much clearer if we talk instead in terms of automation. And then we can say, okay, what's being automated? Why are we automating that? Who's benefiting? Who's being harmed? And so on. But sometimes you can make the discussion both more illuminating and more fun um, by replacing the phrase AI with something like mathy math, as my mystery AI hype theater 3000 co-host Alex Hanna um, coined. Or there's also Stefano Quintarelli's wonderful Salami which is an acronym that has something to do with uh, machine inferences, the MI. And uh, he points out that then you, if you ask questions like, does the salami understand? Does the salami have feelings? Is the salami conscious? You can tell just how ridiculous it is. You also, uh, a few years ago, introduced into the discourse the term stochastic parrots in this uh, paper you co-authored. In the, on the dangers of stochastic parrots, can language models be too big? Could you tell us what a stochastic parrot is? Sure, absolutely. So stochastic parrot is a phrase that is meant to be an alternate and more evocative description of what also gets called a large language model. And that is a certain kind of technology that's very popular right now. It's what's underneath ChatGPT, for example. It gets called AI. And in a lot of the discourse, the phrase artificial intelligence is being used as a synonym of ChatGPT and of large language models or LLMs. And what's particularly tricky about large language models is that they are algorithms designed to mimic the form of text in English and other sort of well-resourced languages. And because we can make sense of this text, in fact, we can't help but make sense of it, we end up imagining that there's some thinking behind the text when there isn't. And so the point of the phrase stochastic parrots was to try to make that clear. 
And every time I talk about it, I have to say this is no shade on actual parrots, which I'm sure are very <laughs> clever and lovely animals. I think you might even have some out there around you. We don't have them flying around in the wild in Seattle, uh, but they're amazing. But no, rather I'm, I'm drawing there on the English verb to parrot, which we use to mean repeat back without understanding. And then stochastic just means randomly according to some probability distribution. So stochastic parrots is meant to evoke that that output you're seeing from ChatGPT isn't the result of something that's got an idea it wants to communicate or that's understood your question and thought about it and come up with an answer. It is just haphazardly stitching together some bits of its training data based on the probabilities that have been trained into the weights in the model. Emily, there's a lot of hype surrounding what's termed artificial intelligence. It seems your work is examining that in a, in a way that undermines those claims quite effectively. But what do you think explains this attempt to boost this industry? Well, surely the profit motive. It's <laughs> and you know there there is a wonderful work looking at hype cycles in technology. I think that there's really interesting discussions frequently on the podcast Tech Won't Save Us with Paris, Paris Marx, for example. And Malcolm Harris has a wonderful book on the history of Palo Alto, the town at the heart of Silicon Valley and California and capitalism, which is a great book that looks into this. But basically, we are seeing this hype because it benefits people who are making money off of automation or the surveillance that is motivated by that automation for the people at large and for regulators to believe that what they've built is actually magic. There's a lot of industries and things that shouldn't be industries that are interested in using this technology. Uh, I must confess, I've, I fell into a little bit of a, a hype spiral myself the other day, sitting in court and seeing the same things being said over and over again, and then the same outputs from the bench and thinking, well, could this be done by a computer? And then I thought, oh, of course not. That's stupid. <laughs> There's so much bias built into you know the, the history of these judgments that it would be so far from justice. And then to tune into your podcast and hear that, oh, there are people in positions of power having these same thoughts, but not having that last little bit is slightly concerning. Yes, very much so. And I think that when you have that thought, a great question to ask is, again, why would we want to automate this? And a great resource to go back to is Joseph Weizenbaum's book from 1976 that you may have heard of. The, the title is Computer Power and Human Reason, but the subtitle is From Judgment to Calculation. And one of the points that he makes is that computers can calculate, but in something like courtroom decisions, even if they are very similar over and over and over again, what's needed there is judgment. And judgment requires human values. And for Weizenbaum, you don't get to values if you haven't had lived experience. Emily, do you think given computers have generated such incredible calculating power, are there ways in which that can be remain under human control and, I guess, be allowed to make, to make calculations but not uh, render judgments? What, what's, is there some way of, do you think, a path forward that enables this technology to be used for, I guess, humane purposes? I think it depends a little bit on what you mean by this technology. I would argue that there's some technologies that simply can't be used humanely. Thinking of, for example, autonomous weapons probably don't have humane uses. But things like large language models, which right now are being used very irresponsibly to generate synthetic text, 
can also be used as components of things like automatic transcription systems or machine translation systems, or even the you know, sort of spell check, which is very useful. And I think that the way forward to using this kind of stuff responsibly is regulation that insists on accountability and having that accountability sit with the people who create and deploy, and in some cases use these systems. And when I say in some cases, one example that comes to mind is that I recently was discovered that some someone has put up fake books about mushroom foraging on Amazon. So they used ChatGPT or something like that to generate a book length text that purports to be a guide to how you would find mushrooms, but it's not based on careful research and sort of you know community knowledge of which mushrooms are safe. It's based on let's get the synthetic text machine to extrude some synthetic text. And now that's sitting there on Amazon. Um, I mean, hopefully that particular example has come down by now because it's been known of for about a week, um, but it's sitting there on Amazon for somebody to buy. And it looks just like any other reasonable book about mushroom foraging and someone could well die from that. So where's the accountability chain here, <laughs> right? There is whoever it was that set up the large language model that was used to write the book. If it was ChatGPT, we're talking about OpenAI and the people that make up that company. Then there was the person who decided to use the large language model to write the book and post it on Amazon. Then there's Amazon that's hosting these things without maybe sufficient authentication at this point. And then there's the person who buys it. And if the person who buys it is, you know, the one who comes to harm, I don't think there's a lot of accountability that sits with that person because they went online and found a book in an online bookstore and did what you do with a book, right? If they turned around and gave the book to somebody else or decided to lead a mushroom foraging trip based on the information of that book, then maybe they have some accountability too. But to think about the people at every step along the way and their accountability and whether or not that's already codified in existing regulation or what needs to be added, I think is the way forward. Emily, the other part of the Stochastic Parrots paper title is Can Language Models Be Too Big? What are the dangers of these large language models that are essentially black boxes. There's no real clue what's in them. Yeah. So when we were writing that paper, large language models were primarily used only as components in other systems to do classification. And the paper started because my co-author, lead co-author, Timnit Gebru, who was at Google at the time, wrote to me and said, hey, has anyone written about you know the problems with doing bigger and bigger and bigger ones of these? Because I see the people around me here in this race to try to make the bigger one against other companies that are trying to make even bigger ones. And, you know, her job was co-lead of the AI ethics team at Google with Meg Mitchell. And so it was, it was their job to advise the people around them on how to build this technology responsibly. And she saw a need to sort of draw together the risks of this path. And I, you know, responded to her um, message saying, I don't know of any papers like that, but here's a few dangers off the top of my head. And then the next day I said, Hey, that looks like a paper outline. Do you want to write this paper? And so we, you know, got some co-authors, my PhD student who is now finished, Dr. Angelina McMillan Major, um, Dr. Gebru pulled in Dr. Mitchell and three other folks from their team. And we brought together this paper, which was really largely a survey paper, sort of bringing in all the things we knew about the dangers of these things, including as one subpoint, the fact that they can create plausible sounding text that is ungrounded in any accountability or communicative intent. And that point, which is really the stochastic parrots point, 
felt like it was out on a limb when we wrote the paper in late 2020, because we thought people were going to say, oh, surely nobody would use these things to just create synthetic text. Like, <laughs> why would anybody? That turns out people did. But there's also other dangers, like these large language models are going to pick up and then amplify all of the biases that are in the text. And one of the points that we make is that you might think that they are built on representative data samples because that data is drawn from the internet. And we think of the internet as big and diverse. And surely if we just take data off the internet, then we're getting a, a good representative view of how people talk about our world. But that's not true, right? If you think about who has access to the internet, you are already tapped into systems of power and privilege. If you think about who can comfortably participate on the internet without getting harassed off platforms? Again, you're seeing the effects of systems of oppression and power and privilege. If you think about which of the uh, fora on the internet, those data sets, the, the crawl that's behind the data set is drawn from, that is again, not representative. And then there's another step that's done. So there's something called the common crawl, which is where a lot of these data sets start. And then the next step is to say, okay, well, we don't want to have as input to our large language models, things that are like overt, you know, white supremacy or hate sites. And we also don't want lots of porn. So let's try to filter that out. And at the time that we were writing anyway, the primary way that was done was with this list of 400 English keywords that was not created for that purpose. It was actually created in some kind of a recommendation site. I forget if it was music or pictures. And basically the developer of that site didn't want these words showing up in the autocomplete if someone was searching on his site. So he made this list, which was, you know, a good idea. And then he put it up on GitHub and it got reused as a way to filter data crawled from the internet. And one of the problems here is that it included a lot of terms that are associated with sex. And a lot of those terms are also identity terms to do with being, for example, from the LGBTQ community. And so if you use those terms to filter your large selection of internet data, yes, you will get rid of some porn sites, but you will also get rid of the sites where people who inhabit marginalized identities are talking about them in a positive way. And so that further skews what's in the training data. So all of that means that the output is going to be biased in ways that support the hegemonic views of the world. That was a lot. <laughs> I, I guess also some of the problems with that is maybe we shouldn't rely on the work of one guy in an afternoon to clean up the data. And also there are perhaps uh, things that you wouldn't want in a data set in languages other than English. Could you tell us a little bit about the Bender rule? So the Bender rule, I didn't name it. It got named after me, but once it did, I picked it up and ran with it. Back in 2011, actually, I noticed that people were in my field, computational linguistics and natural language processing, if people were working on a paper around, for example, let's say spell check or um, what sometimes gets called machine reading comprehension, which is another little bit of hype, or biomedical information extraction, any one of these topics in English, they wouldn't say English. And so if you wrote a paper about biomedical information extraction in English, it sounded like you were writing a paper about biomedical information extraction in general. But if you were working on, let's say, Wambaya, which is a, a language of Australia that I'm very fond of, or even a language like, you know, Bahasa Indonesia or Swahili, which have very large speaker populations, you would say, you know, I'm doing biomedical information extraction in Swahili. And that paper looked like it was somehow specific and not so general. And so I started recommending, hey, you know, name the language you're working on, especially if it's English, so that we can decenter. English in this purpose. And in 2019, at one of our major conferences, 
I had gotten so fed up with this that I just started asking that question. After any talk that I went to where the speaker hadn't said what the language was, I just raised my hand and said, excuse me, this is Emily Bender from the University of Washington. What language were you studying? So, so that becomes known as the Bender rule. And that's really like the absolute bare minimum of data set documentation. And one of the things that we say in the Stochastic Parrots paper, because we ask the question, you know, can large language models be too big? We have to give an answer. And the answer isn't there's some specific size that's too big, but the answer is too big to thoroughly document is too big to deploy. If you can't tell people who are going to use your technology what's in the training data, then nobody can actually begin to use it safely. And the reason we came to that idea is that many of us in the co-authors had already worked on dataset documentation proposals, which was something that people started working on actively across multiple sites in 2017. And here we are in 2023, and OpenAI is telling us, oh, we can't possibly tell you what's in the data for GPT-4 because that would be unsafe. Emily, could not a lot of these problems be solved by something like Elon Musk's Truth GPT, which will only have true information? Oh, that one is so absurd. And it gets worse, by the way. It's not just that he's like, you know, when I first heard that, I thought, oh, he's probably just, you know, going to make the anti-woke GPT or something. (laughs) No, it's not that. He actually claims that uh, he's going to design something that is a truth-seeking engine. And because it is seeking truth and because humans are interesting, that one will be safe. And it won't, you know, in his imagination, become the kind of imaginary AI that wants to kill off humanity. There's a slightly less silly version of this still incorrect idea. I heard on one of our radio stations here, and I'm sorry, I don't have the source, but somebody from like the US National Security Agency or one of our spy agencies claiming that they could use large language models to gather intelligence. And the way that that would work is that instead of taking ChatGPT, which is trained on who knows what, they would train it only on their documents so they know what's inside of it. The problem is that the what these systems are doing is basically taking the training data, mushing it together and extruding new text. And if you think about things like negation, you can very quickly see how it's going to come out with incorrect information a lot of the time. I have an example for you that actually predates the current large language model craze, although certainly there was a large language model in the previous generation involved in this. So you know how Google search will sometimes give you a snippet. It will sometimes give you not just a link to the page, but like a little snippet from the page that the algorithm calculated was an answer to the question. And if you take that, sometimes it is literally just information lifted out of context. And sometimes it is a paraphrase of what was in the text. And there was a point where the University of Utah health system had a web page up that was about what to do if someone had a seizure. And if you searched on Google, my friend just had a seizure, what should I do? It came a link to that page. And then below that was this list of things. And if you clicked through and looked at the University of Utah page, it was actually a list of things not to do. (laughs) So there's no such thing as a truth GPT because a large language model is a system for haphazardly stitching together linguistic forms with no communicative intent and no accountability for the reliability of the information that we get when we read those linguistic forms. Emily, speaking of dangers and Parrots, the paper did pose particular dangers to some of the authors. Can you talk about what the consequences were for your co-authors and have things changed with Google and other uh, massive corporations like uh, Twitter or X in the years since? Yeah. So the paper was written as as initially submitted to the FACT conference. We had seven co-authors. Two of us were at the University of Washington. The other five were at Google. And 
I should say that these were research scientists at Google. Their job was to write papers and specifically papers about AI ethics. And if you are a researcher at Google and you want to publish a paper, you have to put the paper through something called PubApprove before you submit it to the conference, which they did, and it was approved. So we finished the paper, it went through PubApprove, we submitted it to the conference, and then we're waiting because, you know, peer review takes some time. I think we submitted it in, it must have been around October 8th or 9th of 2020, because that's roughly when the deadline was. And then in late November, my Google co-authors were suddenly told, actually, we, we don't approve this, we retract the approval. You have to either retract it from the conference or take your names off of it. And, you know, there was this very strange moment where my PhD student and I said, well, it seems odd to publish a paper with just our names. That's actually seven people's worth of work, but we will follow the lead of the people who are actually being impacted here. And the initial answer from the Google co-authors was, no, we want this out in the world. You know, please go ahead and publish it. And then Dr. Timnit Gebru said, actually, hang on, this isn't right. I'm doing my job here by doing research and publishing it. I run through the appropriate procedures. Nobody told us what they objected to in the paper or who had made that decision. And so she wrote back and she said, look, I need to know how this is going to work in the future and, you know, who made this decision. And, you know, if you can't tell me these things, then I will find work with my manager to find an appropriate time to leave. And what came back was effectively, we accept your resignation. And she's like, I did not resign. <laughs> so that was Dr. Gebru. And then Dr. Mitchell spent the next couple of months, you know, working to document the sort of harassment and oppression that her colleague had been experiencing at Google. And as a result of that work that she was doing, got fired and, and everybody, uh, nobody disputes that it was a firing in Dr. Mitchell's case. The other three co-authors, you know, decided they needed their jobs and took their names off, which is why it's published with only four authors in the end. Has it gotten better since? No, I don't think so. And that's really sad because I know there, I know some fantastic researchers who have been working in industry. I should say that Dr. Mitchell landed at Hugging Face. So she is still in industry. Dr. Gebru has started up her own research institute called the Distributed AI Research Institute. And, you know, people like Meredith Whitaker, who is the, the CEO, I believe now of Signal. There are some great folks in industry. And, if this were all working well, we would have strong regulation, we would have strong journalism, we would have strong advocacy from community organizations, and we would have people working on the inside of these companies who think deeply about these things and were respected and believed and not treated as, you know, something that's getting in the way of quote unquote progress. And unfortunately, it seems like for most of big tech, there are people who are hired to be the so-called AI ethicists, and they are just for show. And if they try to do more, then they're likely to get pushed out. Uh, it seems that AI ethics is not a hugely popular at the top end of the tech town, but AI safety is. Could you tell us a little bit about what the difference is between these things and what sort of drives AI doomerism? Yeah. So AI safety is a term that that tends to apply to people whose main concern is that these tech synthesis machines are somehow going to become sentient and hatch a desire to take over the world and kill us all. And it is absurd. It belongs to this tradition that's called long-termism with, you know, roots in things like transhumanism and eugenics and all kinds of awfulness. And I think that it is appealing to many people for a couple of reasons. One is if the systems that they're building might do this thing, then that means they're building really powerful systems. And so it's, you know, saying, oh, look, it's so bad. It's so dangerous is actually a kind of hype in and of itself. 
And I think another thing is that it is the kind of problem that somebody can worry about without confronting their own privilege in the least. And I think that makes it attractive to many people as well. Emily, you've referred to, I guess, the difficulties many people working in tech experience in terms of attempting to hold these systems of power accountable. And I think I read elsewhere in an interview, I think it was with The New Yorker, you referred to the fact that as someone who has a tenure at a university, you're in a you're more able to express honest and open criticism of these systems. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways in which tech in general, but this hype around AI and large language machines and so on, how that imp- impacts upon scholarship as a whole and what do you think the, the dangers are that are inherent in that effect? So certainly I speak from a lot of academic privilege. Having tenure at a university means that uh, you know the, the whole point of tenure is academic freedom, that I can speak out about things without fear for my job. That said, there are plenty of people who have a similar amount of personal academic freedom who still have lots of incentives not to do what I'm doing. And here I'm drawing on the work of, again, Meredith Whitaker, who has this wonderful piece called The Steep Cost of Corporate Capture. And she points out that many, many academics actually depend on goodwill of the big corporations for access to compute resources, for grants, for the ability to place their students in internships or eventually jobs. And in fact, many, many faculty are actually faculty members, but also hold part-time positions in industry. And so there is a lot of overlap and a lot of people who in principle should be very independent because they are supported by, you know, the public good of independent research institutions, and yet still have lots of incentives to do what the corporations are most interested in. And one of the things that I've seen, and, and this is, this is corporations and like, like it's not, when you say big tech, and that includes things like open AI, which is not in terms of people all that big, right? It's big because there's a lot of money behind it. Open AI in particular has taken these notions of artificial general intelligence and similar ideas that were completely fringe, the whole long-termism thing, the whole AI safety thing, and made it mainstream by virtue of having a lot of money and being able to collect the data and compute resources to build their GPT systems. And that, you know, definitely is detrimental to the sort of flourishing of research directions outside of that narrow kind of interest within our field. It seems that one of the things you're tackling in terms of assessing what purports to be artificial intelligence is, um, as I think you detailed earlier on, um, questions about what it is to be human. I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on that and why it is that these sorts of efforts are actually resulting in processes of dehumanisation and the dangers that poses to society as a whole. There's a whole bunch of dehumanization that goes on in the name of AI. Um, One thing has to do with, in order to build statistical systems that process information about people, people have to be reduced to data points, and that's already dehumanizing. And Deb Raji has a wonderful essay in the MIT Tech Review from late 2020 that I don't have the title of off the top of my head, but she basically raises the point that the so-called ground truth that these systems are trained on is full of lies about Black people and especially Black women like her. And so that is a kind of dehumanization. Another kind of dehumanization going on is in the 
labor exploitation that is behind a lot of these systems, right? This is all wrapped up and shiny and it looks sleek and automated. But in fact, what's behind it is a tremendous amount of click work, some of which is incredibly traumatic. So there's been some very good reporting about a very bad situation where click workers in Kenya were tasked with categorizing offensive output from ChatGPT so that an additional layer of training could be done for it so that other people wouldn't see that offensive output. So they had jobs were all day long and under time pressure, they had to classify output as offensive or not. And if offensive, what kind of offensive all for like less than $2 an hour. So this is horrendous and dehumanizing. There's also the fact that the people who are building these systems and want to see them as artificial general intelligence. So either machine gods that they have created or some kind of life form that makes them a god for creating it will basically, uh, in order to see their systems as human-like, will minimize what it means to be human. And so here we have Sam Altman tweeting out, I am a stochastic parrot and so are you, letter R, letter U. And the whole point is, well, you know, people only ever repeat things other people have said. And so, you know, therefore what I've made is as good as a person which completely misses the point of what it is to have an experience, to communicate the experience, to be human. I'm just thinking in terms of also historical parallels and thinking about previous movements, ideologies like futurism and so on that were born maybe a century or so ago that esteemed the machine as a, a kind of a thing that would overcome humanity. This was our future, whether or not that was men becoming like machines or machines becoming like men, it seems that there's something about this kind of uncritical acceptance of so-called technological progress that imperils humanity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Beth Singler makes a wonderful point, which I heard in the Radical AI podcast episode with her. She probably makes it elsewhere too, that looking back on the development of science and technology, it's easy to see it as linear progress. So someone did this study and then someone else built on it and did that one or someone, you know, created the steam engine and that allowed this to be created and so on. And then science fiction gives us a point that we imagine to be in the future. And then we imagine that supposedly straight line of previous technological development to where we are continuing from where we are into that future point. And the only choice we have is how fast do we run down that path? And it's, it's really unfortunate because in the name of running down that path, we end up creating technology that can be used for surveillance. We end up creating technology that reinscribes and reinforces systems of oppression. We end up creating technology that turns, you know, existing livable jobs into piecework and digital piecework or, you know, allows industries like taxi industries to be decimated by something like the Uber and Lyft, the, the ride sharing services that it basically extract the value out of that for the investors of Uber and Lyft and leave people in this very untenable, precarious employment position. All because we think we're running towards some future that we imagine to be like what we see in either the rosy or apocalyptic science fiction movies. And that doesn't have to be what we do. And it certainly isn't how science and technological development work, right? I, I am a scientist. I am a technologist. I use computers. I use spell check. I use machine translation. But I think that 
the right way to do this is to think about science and technology development and scholarship in general as a conversation. And ideally a conversation that includes not just multiple different scholars and maybe R&D departments and industry talking to each other, but a broader conversation that brings in the people who are going to be impacted by the technology so that we can make wise decisions about what we're building. Uh, Emily, just finally, obviously mystery AI hype theater 3000 would be one resource, but if someone is unfamiliar with this AI technology and wants to understand it and its political ramifications, I was wondering if you could recommend some a good jumping off point. Yeah. So a few things I like to recommend. The Radical AI podcast has wrapped up, but the resources are all still there and that's wonderful. I also like the podcast Tech Won't Save Us, which I probably already recommended. And there's a wonderful book by Dan McQuillan called Resisting AI. Also absolutely wonderful is Meredith Broussard's Artificial Unintelligence. And then she has another book called More Than a Glitch. And those are great starting places as well. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Emily. If people want to read more of your work, you're on X, Blue Sky, and Mastodon, Emily M. Bender in all of those places. And, and the podcast, of course, Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Well, Andy, that is our show. We will be back next week. See you later. See you then. I have felt love, I have felt pain, I felt anticipation, and I will again. I can feel joy, I felt sad too, I've lived in melancholy and all different shades of blue. I've felt them all before, peaceful, proud and present too. I've felt the need to hold a hand, i felt the need to self-improve. There is
feel pain I felt anticipation Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to a 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.